Last time we covered uh, basically 3,000 years of Israelite history in 45 minutes because we had to bring us up to the point in history where Israel was in Babylonian captivity. And so they were in captivity for 70 years to fulfill the prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah. And God let them be taken away as slaves because they would not serve God. And we can learn a lot from that. Anytime we don't serve God, we become slaves to whatever owns us. Even though we're born again and blood-bought, we can be slaves to habits. We can be slaves to sin. We can be slaves to our job. We can be slaves to insecurity. It's just better to serve God. And freedom, you want to talk about being free, you're free from sin. That's what freedom really looks like. Freedom is not uh, being full of attitude. Some people are bound to attitude. Some people are bound to anger. But freedom is, is you're free. And so there's a lot of allegory that can be covered from the entire Old Testament. That brings us up to what we want to talk about this morning. If you look there at your lesson, we're uh, calling this uh, Building Revival. Last week's was a working title. We're calling this Building Revival, a study of post-exilic Israel. That just means after the exile. Fancy theological term. I thought I would use it to enlarge your vocabulary. Post-exilic Israel, and this is lesson two, Zerubbabel and the second temple. Next week, we'll cover Ezra, and then we'll cover Nehemiah and the wall. So let's jump in this. I have probably spent, honestly, 40 hours this week working on this lesson because to wrap my mind around all the history of the Persian kings, the Babylonian kings, the timeline, Ezra is not written chronologically, is a beast of a book to study. Uh, So we've tried to boil it down, condense it, and distill it so you can understand what it's saying and what's going on. So in the year 559 BC, so basically 559 years before Christ, there was a king named Cyrus II. Uh, He came to the throne of Persia. The Bible calls him Cyrus the Great. The Bible does not speak of Cyrus I because he had no dealings with the Jews. After nearly 70 years of Jewish captivity, Cyrus, king of Persia, made a proclamation permitting the exiled Jews to return home and rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. Nine years later, Cyrus conquered the Medes, producing the Medo-Persian Empire. So in 559, Cyrus becomes this king of Persia. Persia has conquered Babylon, and now Cyrus is over the Jews. He has inherited the Jewish captivity. We covered last week, Israel was carried away north to Assyria, or Azure, and they never returned ever again. The, the, the Israelites, and if you remember, the kingdom was divided after Solomon between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and then the kingdoms went th- those directions. Israel, which was the northern kingdom, was never good, ever. They never had a good king. They were all demonized devil worshipers. Judah, on the other hand, had eight good kings out of 20, and so Judah had a lot softer heart. So when Judah went into captivity into Babylon, the Lord was a lot more merciful and gracious to them. They had a lot more favor with Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and then you had Cyrus, and then you had Xerxes, and you had Darius, and you had Artaxerxes. They, they gave a lot of favor to the Jews. Here you have Cyrus comes to the throne, and in the first year of his reign, and it's, it's about halfway through the Babylonian captivity, or near the end of the Babylonian captivity, he makes a decree concerning them. Look at our next section here. And if I'm moving too fast, you have this to go home and study by and put the pieces together. I would also encourage you while we're teaching this, be studying or at least reading Ezra and Nehemiah. Read it in the NIV, read it in the New King James, read it over and over again. Have a working knowledge of those two books of the Bible that most Christians don't even know are there. And I will remind you that the New Testament does say 
that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and all scripture is good for doctrine, for exhortation, for, for, for that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished. All scripture can make you wise into salvation. That includes Ezra and Zerubbabel. Knowing, according to what Paul taught, told Timothy, knowing the life of Zerubbabel can make you wise into salvation. All right. So Zerubbabel, his name means seed of Babylon or sown in Babylon or offspring of Babylon. And he is perhaps known by his Persian name, Sheshbazar. Ezra talks about Sheshbazar. And it is supposed by many that Sheshbazar is the Babylonian name for Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is the Jewish version, just like Daniel and the three Hebrew boys had different names, Babylonian and Hebrew. It is supposed, others disagree with that, but either way, he may be the, the prince of Judah called Sheshbazar mentioned in the first chapter of Ezra. But Zerubbabel is how he's mentioned in the Old and New Testament. He was a descendant of King David and thus the great-grandfather of Jesus Christ. In fact, both Matthew and Luke count Zerubbabel in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So that's why he is so significant. He was commissioned, excuse me, he was made the governor of Judah under King Cyrus. So King Cyrus is ruling out of Babylon, out of Persia, two different places, but they had two capitals. But as a, as a world leader, King Cyrus has all this domain, but he has to put people under him over those regions, viceroys and governors. So under Cyrus, Zerubbabel was made the, the governor over Judea, Israel. He was commissioned and commanded by Cyrus to lead a contingent of Jews back to Jerusalem to build the Lord God a new temple. If you remember, Solomon's temple had been totally destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The Jews were so stubborn, Nebuchadnezzar would come fight against Israel, ransack the city, kill a bunch of people, take a bunch of people as prisoners, and leave. And you think that would cause the Jews to repent of their idolatry, but they would not. They would think, well, okay, we've been judged now, and they'd go back to their sinfulness. And the Lord would send Nebuchadnezzar back 10 years later. Can you imagine a 10-year, you think you're okay with God for 10 years, but you're just still sinning the same, living the same, because the Lord hasn't said anything to you since the last time you were ransacked, raped, pillaged, and taken prisoner? The Jews were some dumb people. Sounds like the church. <laughs> 10 years later, Nebuchadnezzar would come back, wear them out again, kill a whole bunch of them, kill their chief men, and take a bunch of them prisoner. And the, Israelite, the Jews would not repent. God had given them about 10 more years. And so the third time, the Lord sends Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, the Lord calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. He sends his servant Nebuchadnezzar back to Israel, Judah, Judea, Jerusalem. He judges them again. And this time, the Lord has his own temple destroyed and his city burned to the ground. And everybody's carried away into captivity into Babylon, those that remain. Everybody else has been wiped out and butchered, massacred. Daniel's taken away a slave. Ezekiel's taken away a slave. Uh, the Hebrew boys are taken away of slaves. And Jerusalem is left desolate. As the Lord had prophesied over and over again, if you don't repent, I will make your city the abode of owls, it says, the abode of dragons and wolves. And that's what happened. And they never repented till, the, till they woke up in Babylon and they said, God was serious. Amen. <laughs> so he was, uh, the contingent of Jews was brought back to Jerusalem to build the Lord God a new temple, also called the second temple. So you had Solomon's temple, then you have the second temple. In the time of Jesus, it had been restructured and called Herod's temple, but this is the second temple. 
This was the beginning of the fulfillment of Jeremiah and Isaiah's prophecies about Israel's restoration. This is all about Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, a good and expected end. This is the beginning of that fulfillment. So in the next three weeks, we're going to look at these three great men, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and their lives and their assignments follow the same pattern. And it's a pattern we want to look at for us called, I call it building revival. There's the commission, there's the opposition, and then there's the encouragement. The opposition, the willing servants, and then there's the spiritual encouragement. And all three of these men experience the same pattern from God. And two or three witnesses give us a pretty good pattern of things to build from. So as we look at this, let's think about what the Lord is doing in our church, what the Lord is wanting to do in America. So this great man, Zerubbabel, has a commission. When the Lord wants something done, he always commissions a leader to implement the plan. Whether it was Moses for the Exodus, Joshua to take the promised land, or David to build the temple, God always begins with a commission. Zerubbabel's temple was no different. God anointed Cyrus, the Persian king, to build his temple. Now here's where things get really cool. This was prophesied 150 years before Cyrus was even born and 180 years before he performed any of them. Isaiah the prophet by name called out a king named Cyrus who would let God's people go and rebuild Jerusalem. Now what's trippy about that is that you gotta think about the, uh, when Isaiah prophesied it, Jerusalem was flourishing. Israel was strong. Judah was a strong kingdom. And he's saying there'll come a king and he will rebuild Jerusalem and cause it to be inhabited again. And you know, the people are scratching their head going, Isaiah, you're a prophet, but I think you've had maybe too much to drink. Maybe you had too much to eat. Uh, Maybe you didn't get enough sleep. What are you talking about? Isaiah, look at our first verse here. This is a long lesson, but it's because I've had to copy out a lot of verses. Isaiah 44, 26 through 28. uh, Speaking of the Lord, he that confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers that saith to Jerusalem, thou shalt be inhabited. When he prophesied this, Jerusalem was inhabited. And to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. Well, when he prophesied this, they were flourishing. They were strong cities in Judah. And I will raise up the decayed places thereof. There was no decay when he prophesied this 180 years earlier. That saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, who in the world is Cyrus when Isaiah is prophesying this? He is my shepherd. Think about that. Cyrus, a Persian king, the Lord calls him 180 years before he does anything. You're my pastor. A Persian king. You, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple. They already have a temple, Solomon's temple. And to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. This was prophesied 150 years before he was ever born, 180 years before he ever became king. That's the hand of God. Now, one one guy I was studying after, he said the probability of that prophecy coming to pass is one times 10 to the 11th. That's a big number. You have more uh, luck being struck by lightning every day of your life than this prophecy being a random made up thing and it happening. So we see the hand of God and his sovereignty coming to pass. Furthermore, this was prophesied 80 years before the Jews were ever taken into exile. 
This prophecy would have been, made absolutely no sense to the Jews of Isaiah's day. Isaiah further prophesied about this Gentile king who would not be born for another 150 years. This is what the next chapter of Isaiah says, chapter 45, verse one. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. He calls a Persian king anointed, whose right hand I holden to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two left gates and the gates shall not be shut. I have raised him up in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let my captives go. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Prophesied way before this ever happened. And he says he'll let these captives go and he won't do it for any money. Not for a ransom, not for a reward. He'll do it because I tell him to. And the man hasn't even been born yet. God declared that Cyrus would be his anointed leader and his pastor. That, that flows with what we talk about tonight about the rivers of authority. What about evil kings? Well, he was, a, he was a polytheistic king. He worshiped many gods, but the Lord still called him anointed and the Lord still called him his shepherd. You just don't know how God uses leaders. In fact, Proverbs says, and it really twists our thinking sometimes, the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. And wherever he wants to, like a river, he'll just bend it. Sort that out in your doctrine, but it is the Bible. I, I just want to say, Lord, how about the hearts of your sheep? Can you hold their hearts too? <laughs> and can you bend them to church more faithfully? Can you bend them into a sweet path of sweet water? Can you make them love each other? Not, not the king, Lord, just the sheep. <laughs> It was foretold that, we'll slow down here in a second. I'm trying to build the, the historical setting here. It was foretold that Cyrus would release the Lord's captives for no personal gain or ransom. Why would a king let a, a whole generation of slaves just go? Pharaoh never did. God had to wipe them out. But this king, because he was the Lord's, he did it for free. Jewish history, now, now this is not the Bible, but Jewish history, it records that certain Jews brought to King Cyrus the prophecies of Isaiah and he discovered himself in history. Jews came into the king's court and said, sir, would you read what was written by one of our prophets 180 years ago? And the, it's, and the Jewish history says, and, and the king said, that's me. Who am I to fight against God? That's pretty cool. But what we can say from that is you can open up your Bible and read about you and see what the prophets prophesied about you 2,000 years ago and say, here am I. I'm supposed to be an evangelist. I'm supposed to win the lost. I I'm supposed to build the kingdom. I'm supposed to be a giver. This is what the Bible declares of me. Who am I to fight against this? It doesn't call you by name, but it says whosoever. That's an even better blank check. Whosoever will can be born again. Whosoever will can be used of God. Whosoever will can be prospered by God. Whosoever will can be anointed by God. Whosoever will can know God. It's one thing to have your name called out, sure, but the whole New Testament is written to us. Letters written to the beloved, that's us. The, the book of Ezra would seem to confirm Cyrus's recognition of God's hand upon him. Now, this is what he says of himself. This is what Circe, excuse me, Cyrus says of himself in Ezra 1. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. That's what Isaiah 44, 28 said would happen. He's recognizing that the only reason I'm king is because God permitted it. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. That's the very same thing that 45, 1 says. 
The decree quotes the prophecies from both Isaiah 44 and 45. Ezra 1.3 quotes Isaiah uh, 1.3. Uh, it should be 45, I think 45.3. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. Notice that when Cyrus recognized his place in Scripture, he started giving commandments. And if you and I could recognize our place in Scripture, we could start doing things. It doesn't matter what your family has told you about you. It doesn't matter what the world system tells you about you. It doesn't matter what politics say about you. It doesn't matter what race relations have said about you thus far. It doesn't matter about what country you came from. What does the scripture have to say about you? Cyrus II, which is who we're talking about, was the son of Cambyses I, who was the son of Cyrus I. He's in a long lineage of Persian kings that massacre worldly people and worship demons. And if he had stayed with bloodline, he'd have gone to hell and never fulfilled the call of God. But he was able to look into the scriptures. Can you imagine a wicked Persian king? He looked into the Bible and he found out what God said about him and it changed his whole destiny. And you and I can learn a lot from that. It doesn't matter what the world says about us. It doesn't matter what people say about us. It doesn't matter what uh, a different skin color says about our skin color. It doesn't matter about what education says about us. If we would get into the scriptures, we could find out what God is saying about us and change our whole destiny, change our whole quality of life. Our problem, though, is too much. We listen to every other voice but the Bible. That's why we emphasize the Bible so much. What are you listening to? Whoever, listen, whoever you listen to controls you. What are you reading? Whatever you're reading is influencing you. And we were honestly, we, we spend way too much time listening to things outside the Bible. Way, way too much time. God went to great lengths to commission a national revival. If you think about it, before he even sent him into slavery, he already set the thing up. Just like before he ever kicked Adam and Eve of the, out of the garden, he already set up salvation through Jesus Christ. The Lord continues to go to great lengths to move among us today, and we have to be prepared to go with it. This is where we're going to bog down and see how this applies to us, because now we're going to start to get a little bit more convicting in here. The willing servants. So the first step towards revival is the commission. The second step is saying, who wants in on it? God wants to move. Who wants in on it? God wanted to move in Noah's day. Only eight people got in on it. God wanted to move in, in Lot's day in Sodom and Gomorrah. Only three people got in on it. Remnants are what get in on the move of God, but remnants aren't ever big groups of people. When the Lord commissions work, he also supernaturally draws servants to the work. And Zerubbabel had willing help. Here's what Cyrus said, or, or what Ezra says after Cyrus gave this great commission. Whosoever will of you, where's the people? Come on up, let's uh, go build your God a, a house. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. The other thing we would point out is that revival takes work. And this may be why many Christians don't want in on revival because they don't want the work. We live in, an, in a society that's full of entitlement mentalities. We want to sit back like everybody else do the work and we enjoy it. We are so entitled when something doesn't go our way, we complain rather than fix it ourselves, Who do I complain to about this? Why don't you fix it yourself? 
That's the, that's the ideology. That's the mindset we're fighting in America. No, it's almost, it's almost, unless you're just a mature Christian, very few Christians think to go to their knees in prayer. It's just easier to call somebody, call a government official, write a letter, go complain to your neighbor, go complain to your boss. We almost, we have forgotten the art of prayer because it takes work. And when God wants to do something, it takes W-O-R-K. Now, the good news is there's always, God's always going to find a remnant that will do the work and the lazy people will benefit. But maybe only in this life because you won't have any rewards in heaven. So there rose up chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and priests, chief of the priests and of the Levites. Ezra 2, 64, 65 gives us the total number. The whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score beside their servants and their maids of whom there were 7,337 and there were among them 200 singing men and singing women. So that's a total of about 50,000. 50,000 people, 50,000 people are all that were excited or eager to go fulfill Bible prophecy. Anybody here excited to fulfill Bible prophecy? Make sure you really mean it. These folks were totally bummed out when they were made slaves, but after 70 years, ah, it's not so bad. Ah, you know, we're prospering. Ah, you know, they let us own property. I got the kids in school. They're bilingual. Cyrus is nice. We got a nice thing on the river Euphrates. I don't know. You know, it's 900 miles back home. It's dusty. It take a lot of work. And then once we get there, we got to build. I don't got to build here. I got slaves here of my own. I'm not so sure I'm cut out to be a Jew anymore. I'm more Persian Jewish. I'm Jersian. I'm Perjewish. I'm Perusian. And I think I'll just stay. Only 50,000 wanted in on God. Though the returning congregation was nearly 50,000 Jews, this was not the entire population of exiled Jews under Cyrus's rule. If you remember, a few years later, Ezra takes several thousand more. So at least they had a second opportunity. And a few years after that, Nehemiah took several thousand more. And they had a third opportunity. But after that, no more opportunities. After that, you just died in plan B. I wonder how many Christians are going to live and die in plan B. Or they started in plan A for their life, the perfect will of God. And because they got lazy or, or the slavery of America wasn't so bad, they said, well, you know, God understands if I just go to church once a week and, and you know, chase the rat race and get in on Americana and chase the American dream. God understands. He's still blessing me. And they live and die in plan B and never get used of God, never build the house of God, never build the revival of God. I wonder in America how many Christians actually live in that arena. Just a thought. Here's where it gets even scarier. The decree to return, Cyrus's decree says, up, you're free, go, build a temple for your God. That came in 559 BC, but the actual trip did not happen for 13 years. They had 13 years of prep time, 13 years of organization, and 13 years to get people ready. And after 13 years, people still said, I don't want to go. I've only been pastoring this church six years. 
So that's twice my pastorate. They had 13 years to get their heart ready to go up. They had 13 years to put their business in order. They had 13 years to detach their heart from the slavery they were in. And after 13 years, still only 50,000 went. And we keep talking about the move of God that's coming. And we keep talking about what God is wanting to do. And we keep talking, how many years of prep time has the church had? to lay aside your weights, lay aside your sins, to make straight your paths. How many times? And yet God will move because in that regard, he is totally sovereign. He's gonna do what he's gonna do. What he's not sovereign over is our will. But he does say whosoever will, and I'm gonna be a whosoever. But not every Christian is a whosoever. Some still choose and say, they justify, I'm living comfortable in Babylon. I've got my house, it's nice. I've built up a little business here. I've, I've got family here, I can't leave family. How could I leave family behind? How could I do that? Because you're supposed to serve God first and hate everybody else. This demonstrates that no matter what God is doing and no matter how much time is given to prepare, not every believer is interested in being involved with God's current plan. Here, thousands of Jews chose not to be a part of the revival of God they claimed to be eagerly awaiting. Rather, they stayed in the comfort of slavery and exile. Things haven't changed much today. Brings us to another pattern. We see the opposition. Anytime God does something and willing people step up and say, we'll do it, there's always gonna be opposition to you. The devil always resists what God wants to do. Always, 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 always. And you've gotta be prepared. If you say, Lord, I'm a whosoever, the devil's gonna oppose you. People are gonna oppose you. Religion's going to oppose you. Family will oppose you. You gotta be willing to cut family ties with the sword of the spirit. The only relationship you cannot terminate is marriage. Children become prodigals all the time. If they're gonna be a prodigal, bless God, let them hang them out to dry. That's the biblical example of a prodigal in Luke 15. Don't chase them. Don't even have them into your home. You're a fool to have a prodigal into your home. You're not helping them, you're enabling them. In America, if you help a criminal, you can go to jail for aiding and abetting a felon. There are, the body of Christ is full of spiritual felons. They're called prodigals. You and I will get in trouble for aiding and abetting spiritual felons. And the parable of the prodigal is given there as an example to us how we are to handle prodigal children. We want everybody to come home, but when you come home, you come home on God's terms, not your carnal felon terms. Amen. The opposition, the devil will always oppose whatever God is doing, amen to that. The devil seems to be able to always produce a two-front attack. The opposition within what God is doing and the opposition outside of what God is doing. So from within God's people and outside of God's people, and this is true in every church, there's always gonna be opposition in the church from the believers, or hopefully just one or two. Jesus Christ had a Judas, but Jesus Christ also had a Pharisee or Pharisees. Every church has a Judas in the making and every church has Pharisees on the outside. Jesus didn't have any problem from the secular kings. Herod was interested in Jesus. Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with them. 
He said, why should I crucify him? He's done nothing wrong. Jesus didn't have any problems from the kings. He had problems from the Pharisees. Zerubbabel had opposition from within and from without. He had the ancient men opposing him from within, and he had the adversaries from without. There, the ancient men within, Ezra 3, 10a, 12, and 13a. And when the built, this is when now, now they're back in Jerusalem, and they've excited in the second year, they're at their home in Jerusalem. They, they clean off the temple mount, and they lay the new foundation for what is to be the new temple. It takes them a year to lay a foundation. That's a big, that's a big foundation. But it was never as big as Solomon's temple. It was never, they didn't have the manpower or the money. This was, this was a, um, a post-apocalyptic temple. It was never gonna be as great as what Solomon could do after David's tremendous reign. These guys are slaves coming out with some money, but they, they've been slaves for 70 years. How can they build anything that ever compares to Solomon? And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, many of the priests and Levites and chief of their fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house. So these were guys that had been in Jerusalem who remembered Solomon's temple. They had lived through the entire captivity. They were very old. That's why they call them ancient men in the King James. When, they, when, they, uh, when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. And many shouted aloud for joy. So you had folks that were excited that said, hallelujah, God is moving again. And then you had the old fuddy-duddy useless stick in the muds who weep because it's not as big as it once was. So that the people could not discern the noise. Notice it produced chaos. The devil loves chaos in a local church. Half the folks are excited about what God's doing. The other half of the folks, well, this ain't how it used to be. I've dealt with that for six years. This is where I always like to stop and say, Pastor Vaughn is dead. Going on seven years now. And it ain't ever going to be like him. Fuddy-duddy. So the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. The old timers who remembered the grandness of Solomon's temple wept when they saw the mere footprint of the reduced second temple. The sight provoked the ancient men to weeping. They realized that the new temple would never match the grandeur of Solomon's temple and were bitter at the secondhand temple. Haggai rebukes them. Haggai's a prophet to Zerubbabel. He rebukes them. I like to point this out. Maybe they forgot they were to blame for the destruction of Solomon's temple. Jeremiah 23 says, the prophet and the priest are profane and they have defiled my temple. It was the priest's fault that the temple was destroyed in the first place. And now here they are, they're just not happy with this new move of God because it's not as big as what we used to have. Where's the thankfulness that you're still alive? Where's the thankfulness that you're actually still in church? Where's the thankfulness that God still loves you? And where's the remembrance that it was your fault we got judged in the first place? As you, priest, you're the reason we went through judgment. You're the reason we were carried away as slaves. You're the, you're the ones that led us astray. You, leader, you led us astray. You ought to just be thankful you're still breathing the rarefied air. You ought to be thankful God had mercy on you, took you to slavery, let you keep your wife, let you keep your kids, let you keep your house and prosper you and bring your sorry butt back. Amen. It's good preaching. (laughs) 
Anytime God moves, it is often the old timers who want to be critical and compare it to the former move of God. How, how come you let the former move of God die out, old timer? I'm going to blame you. You blame me, I blame you. I'm the one steering the new ship. You're the one that shipwrecked the old one. I'm just happy we have a little boat. Let's row the boat. It's not as big as that luxury liner we were on before. We ain't drowning. <laughs> row, baby, row. <laughs> the adversaries without. So that's the problem within. God, if that wasn't enough, we got problems without. Ezra 4, 2, and 3. The Samaritans, they, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. The heathen always want to get in on what God's doing, but they don't want to go through Jesus. For we seek your God as you do. No, you don't. And we sacrifice to him since the days of Esahadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. How could you sacrifice to him when you came from a pagan country? But Zerubbabel and Jeshua, that's the high priest, and the rest of the heads of the father's house of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, of Persia has commanded us. Uh, if you remember the Persians, excuse me, the Samaritans were a race of mixed-blooded people who were part Israelite, part Gentile. They worshiped a myriad of gods along with Jehovah. Now, I haven't fully confirmed this, but because this, this is what begins the great strife between the Jews and the Samaritans, this right here, this conversation and this fight right here, all the way up until the days of Jesus Christ, the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews, all because the Samaritans were not permitted to build a new temple. So what they did is they built their own temple on Mount Gergesim. Now, I'm not, I have not proved this, but I believe this is the mountain that the Samaritan woman at the well, when she told Jesus, we worship God in this mountain. And Jesus said to her, you know not what you worship. For salvation is of the Jews, not Samaritans. He swatted her down pretty hard. He said, you're playing games with God. You want to call this the temple of God? We worship in Jerusalem. That's what God said. He was correcting her doctrine, swatting her pretty hard on top of calling her a floozy. And everybody wants to say Jesus was all lovey. I love Jesus. You love Jesus. We love Jesus. He, he loved Jesus. And Jesus basically called her floozer, floozy and she had horrible doctrine. And he said, you don't know what you're worshiping. But if you knew who was before you, you'd ask me for water. It was a hard conversation. And you know what? She wasn't American. She didn't get her little feelings hurt. She said, you're a prophet. And then she said, come meet a man who told me all I ever did. He only told off on two things. She was just that convicted. <laughs> so this starts a war. And, and because they are carnal reprobates, if they're not allowed to help, then they're against you. They worshiped the myriad of gods along with Jehovah. These were the people who wanted to help Zerubbabel build a holy temple. He forbade them. They got mad and turned against him. Even today, the heathen and backslidden Christians still think they have a right to help the church do what it's called to do. Even the, even the heathen want to come up to me every once in a while and say, oh, you're a pastor? Let me tell you what you do. I'm a pastor. You should be quiet. Let me tell you what to do. Give your heart to Jesus. <laughs> I can't tell your marriage. I can't tell you how to run your family, but you want to tell me how to run my church. I can't tell you what to do with your money like tithe, but you can tell me what to do with my church. It's the same demon. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them 
to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. There's four kings there. Two of them ruled very briefly. In the second year of King Darius, they finished the temple. But they were a constant thorn in the side of the Jewish people in their endeavor to obey God. All because the Jews said, you're not good enough to help us. And instead of saying, what must we do to be saved? They said, fine, we're against you. Flesh still wants to take shortcuts. And if it can't, then it gets mad. Opposition always looks the same. Now take note of this, folks, because some of you are dealing with this. Opposition always looks the same. Discouragement, they try to discourage the people. Harassment, buffeting spirits, buffeting thoughts, buffeting imaginations, buffeting friendships. Why would you be friends with somebody that just hurts you? Why would you fellowship with a grown child that's just going to hurt you? Anybody play with snapping turtles? These are turtles that will bite. They snap. They can take a finger off. Nobody plays with snapping turtles because they hurt you. Why would you play with people that hurt you? Why would you fellowship with them? Wicked counsel. All you have to do is get on Facebook and you can get wicked counsel. And frustration. These are the same four things that we deal with today. These are the same four things that were brought against the people of Israel trying to build God a new temple. The Jews endured all of these attacks and continued to build for 16 years. That's a long project. We're going to build for about four months. And even then, some people will get bored with it. Eventually, letters of slander were sent to the new king in Persia, causing the king to issue an official order to cease and desist. If that personal attack against them didn't work, then they're going to go to somebody higher up and slander them. We deal with slander today. You go to that church, they're weird over there. It's a cult. They're controlling. They're mean. They're rude. They make you dress up. They have a high standard. They preach hard against sin. They're judgmental. I guess. I don't know. I love God, though. After 16 years of construction, the adversaries succeeded in stopping the work on the second temple. 16 years of constant buffeting, 16 years of constant buffeting, 16 years of constant buffeting, and the Jews endured it and just kept building. So then they went and tried something else. They slandered, they wrote a letter to the king. A king referred to as Artaxerxes, which just means the great king. And he he sent them a letter saying, stop, stop, stop. These have always been the enemy's tactics and they are still at work today. So there's your opposition. Same stuff we see today, same stuff they saw in Jesus' day, same stuff we'll look at 10 years from now. It's a pattern because the devil has nothing new. But the awesome thing is the Lord doesn't do anything in any kind of new way. He follows patterns. And all you have to be is halfway smart enough to get in on a pattern. The pattern of what God's doing and knowing to resist the devil in his pattern. Our final little section, a pattern that will run through both Ezra and Nehemiah in the next two weeks is the pattern of spiritual encouragement. When you do something for God, it's going to be exhausting. It's going to be buffeting. There's going to be opposition and you'll need to be encouraged. And God will always provide that spiritual encouragement. He'll send prophets across your way. He'll send an encouraging word. He'll send a brother or sister in Christ. A message will be preached just for you. Somebody will pray for you. Somebody will send you a letter in the mail. Somebody will send you an offering. Somebody will take care of you. You'll always have that encouragement. So don't quit. Keep going. Spiritual encouragement. It seems as though every move of God must be prodded along. That's the absolute truth. 
God uses men and men face discouragement. In fact, Dr. Barclay calls discouragement the preacher's plague. Every preacher faces it. It's shut down many ministers in the Bible. Discouragement. Zerubbabel was no different. He was, when he was discouraged, the Lord raised up two prophets to encourage him, Haggai and Zechariah. If you want to know why those two books are in the Bible, they're in the Bible because they were prophets of restoration that prophesied to encourage Zerubbabel and the high priest Jeshua, the son of Zadok, to keep doing what they knew to do. Don't stop. Keep doing what you know to do. Don't stop. Keep doing what you know to do. That's why they're in the Bible. Let's look at these prophecies real quick. I'm out of time. Haggai 2, 3 through 9. Who is left among you? This is what the prophet's saying. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how did you see it now? How do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. Notice the prophecy says work. He doesn't say, and rest. Work, for I am with you. You don't need the Lord to be with you to rest. Says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth. That's quoted in Hebrews 12. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, and the glory of the latter temple, that's the small one, will be greater than the former. He said, it doesn't look like much, but it's going to be much more powerful than what there ever was before. So quit judging after your little carnal eyes. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord. Zechariah 4, 9 and 10. And the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and they shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. The Lord raised up two prophets to prophesy to a man to not quit the building project. We get a couple famous verses out of that. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. That's a famous verse. And also, who shall despise the day of small beginnings? That's from Zechariah. In fact, these two priests, these two prophets are called in Zechariah the sons of oil in Zechariah 9, I believe. And they are also forerunners to Moses and Elijah in the last days, the two witnesses. So these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, are forerunner types and shadows of the two witnesses in the Revelation. There's a lot going on in this post-exilic Israel. And we just thought these were minor prophets whose names we couldn't pronounce and we just read over them. But you see the pattern and it's exactly what we're doing. After 21 years of construction and opposition, Zerubbabel and a faithful remnant group of believers completed the second temple and finished their race. Amen? That's a lot of information, but at least you know a little bit more Bible now. You're better than the average American. You should applaud yourself. Father, I thank you for our Sunday school. I thank you, Father, for blessing these lessons out of the Old Testament. Your word says that they can prosper us and make us wise into salvation. Father, I thank you for a great service in 10 minutes. In Jesus' name, amen.